Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career connecting forward-thinking leaders to the growing FinHealth movement. Now I'm sharing these conversations with you. Discover how these visionaries are challenging the status quo and improving financial health for their customers, employees, and communities. My guest today, Shamina Singh, is the Executive Vice President of Corporate Sustainability at MasterCard, and she's also the founder of the company's Center for Inclusive Growth. For much of her career, Shamina has been at the center of the global financial inclusion movement, where her unique ability to forge public-private partnerships has produced big results. She's now focused on bringing the government and the private sector together to create a financial inclusion commission in the United States. Shamina, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Really glad to be here, Jen. Great to see you. Yeah, same here. So you founded the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth back in 2014. It feels like a long time ago already. Um, yeah. <laughs> as a way to drive the company's social impact. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what does the center do and uh, why did MasterCard decide to create this in the first place? Well, again, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Um and talk about financial health and with the founder of the Financial Health Network. What an honor for me. So we founded the Center for Inclusive Growth uh, at the end of 2013, beginning of 2014, mostly because we had to. We were, um, I originally joined MasterCard uh, to digitize uh, social subsidy programs for government. And in the process of doing that work, uh, started to see that the lessons we were learning sort of on the front lines of financial inclusion um, weren't being taken up anywhere else. And so we sort of went to the leadership of the company and, and actually to the MasterCard board and shared some of the things we were finding through these um, government uh, digital subsidy programs. And they actually said, you know, why don't we create something that allows you to process the learnings catalog them and be a place that people don't have to reinvent the wheel that want to do this work. And so uh, really it became a lesson um, and a practice of necessity uh, for us because we really wanted to make sure that as the world sort of went further on into financial inclusion than we even were at that point, um, that they were uh, not going to have to reinvent the wheel, especially I think private sector companies who were just getting into the space, obviously following people like you and public sector organizations who had had financial inclusion as part of their um, thinking for uh, a long time. And uh, just knowing what I know now about companies like MasterCard and others, um, it's important to be as efficient as you can when doing any of this. So that was really the founding story of the center. Huh. And so uh, the center does a lot of different things today. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that. It's a really, I think, a really interesting model. You know, we've evolved since 2014 um, from that place of, you know, really starting out as research, but building on the idea that you really want to start from an evidence base for any work you're doing. So the shorthand is we really think of ourselves as the philanthropic hub of the company, um, but we have a model of doing this work that relies on uh, insights, so an evidence base and research. It relies on impact. So we go to programmatic work and we now have uh, the MasterCard Impact Fund that uh, actually funds a lot of that work. We have 
impact and um, insights to impact to um, influence. And so this is this piece around once we build the evidence base, we start to learn, we invest in some programs, we continue to learn and scale. We want to make sure, again, that people don't have to reinvent the wheel. So we call it influence, which is we do convene. We try to talk to people like you. We try to publish to make sure that we are influencing the dialogue and the conversation around this work um, through investments. So it's a lot of it, but that, but the, but the basic notion is to really make sure that we're advancing action on inclusive growth. And that's the piece I think that I think differentiates us a little bit. I think, you know, everybody wants to make a difference and have action, but we really try to be very disciplined in our approach and are constantly pushing ourselves and asking the question of, so what? Um, and so and by asking ourselves, so what? Almost in every conversation, we get to a place of what is the action? What's the impact? What's the outcome? Yeah, it makes so much sense for a company like MasterCard, which is ultimately a technology company, um, a payments company, to you know think about extending that capability to improve um, improve uh, inclusion um, and improve the situation in the world, you know we're seeing a lot more uh, commitment to ESG uh, from companies of all sizes. And on the surface, the promises are great, but the question becomes: How do we ensure that there's real impact uh, and that the impact? is hitting the communities and the people who need it most. Uh, I'd love to hear you reflect on how you're thinking about that at MasterCard, particularly given that the way in which you're best able to give back or to engage um, isn't always the things that people most think about, like feeding the hungry or you know housing the homeless. It's more nuanced than that. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and it's, it's also a reason why we started the Center for Inclusive Growth was um, our remit uh, is really to leverage the assets of MasterCard for social and environmental impact. What does that mean? That means that um, in addition to capital, so traditional philanthropy, which is sort of uh, what, what many companies have done for forever, um, we really took a different approach and said, we have to actually analyze the assets of MasterCard in a way um, that will allow us to make the biggest difference and have the biggest impact. Um, and that's where we sort of said, okay, that means data and data analytics. It certainly means capital. It means the technology. It also means our network. The fact that MasterCard is in over 210 economies, you know, with billions of uh, cardholders transacting trillions of dollars, that network was a major asset for the company as well. Um, and then our people, of course, and the expertise. And once we sort of looked at it from that perspective, um, certainly the philanthropy and the capital and the creation of the impact fund has been an enormous enabler and um, accelerator, but it's allowed us to target our interventions in a way that um, for us, I think are more meaningful but also for every, for the world, more impactful. Um, and I think that that's the piece that as companies start to do this ESG work, I sort of think, you know, start with the things that are in some respects easiest to your company and more, much more aligned with the capabilities of your company so that 
you achieve that comfort around doing the work um, in a way that actually makes a difference. And then of course, um, you have to measure it and report it and all of those things. But that's sort of been our journey, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times now just what an incredible incredible remit you have given the global footprint of MasterCard. Uh, um, I'm curious though, how does the work play out in the United States? Um, and, um, you know, you and I know each other for a long time, largely because of global conversations around financial inclusion. Um, and when you come to a country like the United States, um, that journey is a little bit different, I think, um, or maybe it isn't. Maybe it's exactly the same. Um, tell me more about how you're thinking about how this work plays out here in the U.S. Yeah, again, I think it's such a great question. I'll say that, you know, when we first started um, this journey around financial inclusion for MasterCard with folks like the UN and, and others and Queen Maxim of the Netherlands, we made a commitment um, fairly early on to bring 500 million people into the formal economy. Mm. We reached that goal actually during COVID and wow. decided to double down and made and, re, and re-upped our commitment to bring a billion people into the former economy with a focus on uh, small business, particularly women-owned businesses. And uh, when we were doing all of that work, one of the things that we realized also fairly early on is that the lessons we were learning outside of the United States um, actually had a lot of relevance inside the United States. Um, so uh, the idea of gig workers, uh, relatively new in the United States, but not new everywhere else in the world in terms <laughs> yeah. of Asia and you know, multiple jobs and, and things like that. So the idea of trying to understand what a benefit system would look like, um, a portable benefit system would look like in the United States was something that we started working on here. But I'll tell you the thing that I, I think has been um, absent from the conversation is this notion of a, a national financial inclusion strategy for mm. the United States. You know, Jen, as, as you do know, in, in many parts of the world, many countries have financial inclusion strategies that they have drafted, that they are um, uh, working towards, that they, you know, have policy around, that they work with private sector company around. And it's this idea of having a plan that you can reach your targets. You can think about women. You can think about the uh, the folks who need access to formal financial services. The United States actually doesn't have um, a national, a formalized national financial inclusion strategy. And so I think that's one of the things that um, I know you care a lot about, but it's certainly uh, something that I think would really help accelerate and focus the solutions around what's happening in the United States when it comes to things like um, certainly income inequality, but access to financial services, access to financial education, um, you know, access to really allowing Americans to reach their productivity. So I think for me, at least, um, and I'd be interested in your perspective, this notion of creating a national financial inclusion strategy so that we build some structure, a plan and a focus to accelerate um, our advancement, even in the United States around financial services. Yeah. Well, you know me, I'm all about what gets measured gets managed. So the idea of having a framework uh, of some kind uh, that helps shape the uh, role that the federal government can play here um, and holds us accountable, I think is always a good thing. 
Um, what's so interesting to me though is if I'm not mistaken, we're one of the only G20 company countries that doesn't have a financial inclusion uh strategy, national financial inclusion strategy. And I think one of the other benefits or opportunities of us doing so is uh, the uh, influence on the world stage. Uh, you know, there are there are countries who are far ahead of us in this work. So I don't mean to suggest that we don't have things to learn from others, but particularly when you're thinking about it from a systemic approach and creating, frankly, the global systems that are needed to connect the dots and enable people to have full inclusion around the world. Um, I think when the United States speaks, a lot of people listen. Uh, and so I think there's a there's also a, a sort of a competitive competitiveness and global leadership uh, opportunity for the United States uh, if we were to create a, a commission. I agree. I think a, I, I yeah, and I think a commission is probably the straightest path to get there because I think what it would allow us to do is really focus on, you know, again, getting our own house in order. The federal agencies sort of, you know, lining up to say, what did they have within their own inventory of things they should be doing? You know, so much of this work, I think, is because we have fragmented systems and you know, and, and we saw this during COVID. I mean, yep. you know, one technology system didn't talk to another technology system, didn't talk to another technology system, which meant in the end, the people who really needed the help weren't getting it in time or weren't getting it nearly as fast or as efficiently as they could because of a technology situation, which in my mind is um, does such a disservice to our own people in, in the country. But I think that, you know, we're at this really interesting time when, we're experiencing all of this uh, inequality, I think, in the United States and, and frankly, around the world. But we also have this amazing technology, this technological revolution that is also mm -hmm. happening with, you know, between AI and machine learning and, you know, blockchain, all of these really great fancy things, right? But all of these people are still, you know, just now becoming included into the formal economy. And so I think, you know, we've, we've often said you can't really have the internet of everything without the inclusion of everyone. And I think that that's kind of where we end up or we land is let's make sure that we're using all the technology to work for us, not against us. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's the work of people like you, Jen, and the financial health network. It's in work of us at the Center for Inclusive Growth. It's a work of other purpose-driven leaders and companies and, 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 and other organizations to ensure that the benefits of an expanding economy um, are delivered to everyone. And yeah, I, think I think that at our core, that's, that's the thing that we're trying to do here. Yeah, I think that's well said. Now, you'd never know from everything you've said so far that you weren't a deep technical payments expert, but the fact is you started your career in politics if I'm not mistaken, working on a gubernatorial election in Texas, um, and then you held some roles in the federal government. Tell us more about sort of how you got from there to here um, and really what you learned from that experience of, um, of uh, if you will, kitchen table politics. Yeah. So I think the biggest uh, I did, I started out in college, actually, before I even moved to Texas, um, I worked for the first um, African-American gover governor of the state of Virginia, a guy named Doug Wilder. 
so the political organizing was something that has been, and social social justice work has been something that's sort of been part and parcel of my own experience. Um, and I think that that comes out of being, you know, the daughter of immigrants. And mm. um, and I think that, you know, for me, this has all been about real life stuff. Like it's not a theory. It's not something that's removed. It's um, it's the work that I've seen and the way I was raised and where I was raised and all of that, because I've been in situations where this stuff is about life and death, um, you know, so financial health, economic empowerment, access to good wage, a living wage, all of these things are, um, are real for me. And so I think for me, the first entry point was around political um, organizing and political power. And then um, sort of uh, continuing that work, but also then making the connection to economic um, independence and economic empowerment and understanding the connection between public sector work and the role that policy plays and private sector work and the role that industry plays in ensuring that, you know, you've got to have both along with a very strong social sector in order to ensure that the individual um, reaches his or her, you know, full capacity. So the technology and the technical stuff certainly has come uh, as I've been at MasterCard, but it's come at, again, sort of trying to understand the various levers of uh, influence to make sure that people live their best lives. And that's yeah. kind of why I'm motivated to do the work. Yeah. So one of my big heroes is Brian Stevenson from the Equal Justice Initiative. And one thing that he, he always talks about is the need to be proximate. Uh, and uh, even, you know, as an organization like ours, where we not we don't do direct service work, we're working with companies and organizations and getting them to do uh, more and better. Um, I know we have to work hard to stay proximate, to find opportunities to really understand what's going on in people's lives. It's one of the reasons why we do as much consumer research as we do. Um, given the role that you're in now, how do you stay proximate? How do you make sure that you're being informed by real life, as you say? Yeah, it's funny, you know, when we, we've we been doing the work at uh, a MasterCard around financial inclusion for a long time, but one of the things that, you know, we uncovered early on in our own journey was the the necessity of ID. Like that was a surprise to me, right? Was that when you somebody accesses a bank account or when somebody buys a travel ticket or all the things that we take for granted, um, that at, at, at the time there um, are still millions of people in the world that don't even have a basic identification. Um, so they cannot transact at all because they don't have a driver's license or an ID card or something that says, I am Shamina Singh, so I can transact in the world. Um, and that was a, you know, it was a surprise, I guess, at MasterCard. But then I was telling my mother about it. And I was saying, you know, I'm so surprised that we're building these identity solutions now because MasterCard has realized that people need an ID. So we're building out distributed ID. And what, what does that mean? And all of these things. And she's like, she said, that's so funny. She said, I was born without a birth certificate. So I didn't have ID for a long time until I, you know, uh, went to college. And I was like, what are, I, I just, you know, I was like, what are you talking about? And she said in the village, she was born into a small village in India. And when she was growing up, um, the way that they kept the, um, the birthdays was literally her mother would tie a knot in a rope. And oh that was the way that they, um, you know, knew how old you were basically. And, um, 
so she, so it was very like, okay, it was, it was one generation removed. My mother did not yep. have, you know, ID until later in life. And her birth was tracked by a, a knot in a rope. And so was her sister and so were others. And so it just became re- very real for me um, in terms of what this work was doing. And what an amazing world that we live in that, you know, my mother from, you know, a small village in India to sort of me sitting here talking to you today, you know, one generation, what that's meant. Um, to me, it's, it, it keeps me very humble, but also really grateful for, mm. you know, the opportunity. What an incredible story. You know, I'm now beginning to understand that the combination of your, um, your sort of time in politics where, you know, you really need to understand the constituents of the person you're working for, coupled with your time now in the private sector, um, really uh, gives you an interesting worldview. Um, But you're very good at building those public-private partnerships, thinking about how to bring people together in relationship. Talk to me a little bit about why they're so important for this work in particular. Um, and what's your secret for doing it? How, how do you, how do you, how do you so successful, um, in bringing those kinds of partnerships together? Well, I appreciate you saying that. I think that, um, uh, you know, I think that the thing people miss out on, um, is while they're judging each other, they miss out on the opportunity to actually work together. And so that was, I think one lesson, maybe, I don't know what to attribute it to, but I think maybe being the daughter of immigrants where um, we, I wasn't raised to understand the social norms in a way that uh, maybe people who uh, are here for generations have. And so we were discovering them in real time. And so in that, I think the gift of that is um, you don't know what's possible, but you don't know what's impossible. And you don't really judge your I mean, I was curious. And so I think that the, how that translates into partnership is to really look at it as uh, sort of objectively as you can and say, what are the assets of one organization, one individual, one company? What are the assets of another organization, individual and company? How can we marry up these assets in a way that creates something bigger? And so I think that um, that very basic notion of how do you put you know, put things together in a way to equal something bigger is just a, a way of organizing that I think serves serves all of us better. But when it comes to public and private, it's the only way to achieve scale. Like in philanthropy, you know, we talk a lot about this, like, you know, philanthropy is one part of capital, but it's not the capital set. It's if you really want to make change, you have to combine philanthropic capital maybe as the catalyst, but then you get into more commercially sustainable work over time so that when the philanthropy goes away, there's a business model in place to sustain. Um, and one of the things that I learned, I think, you know, I, I used to uh, work with um, nursing home workers in Pennsylvania. I worked for an organization called the Services mm-hmm. Employees International Union. And one of the things that I learned from mostly women who were nursing home workers was they didn't need me or anybody sort of telling them uh, what to do with their money. They just needed the money, <laughs> the, right. the capital themselves. And I think that, you know, really trying to understand that, you know, they have something that they need to do and give. We have something, if you bring it all together, there's a way to align incentives so that 
everybody wins. And I think that it, it may sound naive and it may be naive. I don't know, but it's, it's the way that we have been operating. And um, so far it seems to be yielding good results. Mm. We are living in challenging, uncertain times um, where trust is at an all-time low. And yet we these partnerships that you've talked about are needed more than ever. So um, what's on the horizon for you at the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth vis-a-vis these partnerships? And, and where do you see traction? or opportunities uh, given the moment we're living in now? Uh, I think it's a great question. I think it's a hard question. I think that what we saw during COVID was the first time in a long time that people slid back into poverty. For you know many years, we, we, we were named the Central, for, the Central for Inclusive Growth because we were actually on a cycle where people were, the economies were growing and we were trying to ensure that people were there economic lives were improving along with the growth. I think with COVID, what we saw for the first time is now people have slid back into, um, uh, you know, lower economic situations. And I think for us right now, what we're trying to do is ensure stabilization. And then um, if we can help with the stabilization, we can start to help with, again, that trajectory back uh, into growth. The opportunity, I think, though, that we have is to create, at least in the United States, I think to create a strategy where, you know, we talk about building back better, we talk about all these things, that the moment when we're coming back from COVID, hopefully will never happen again. And so can we align the objectives and the incentives of purpose-driven private sector companies, of public policy, of social sector organizations, so that we're coming back in a way that is more beneficial rather than less beneficial. And I think that requires some intentionality that we're working a lot on um, at the Center for Inclusive Growth. And the last thing I'll say around that, because I think it's important, is that data is, you know, you hear it all the time, data is the new this, data is the new that. We're trying to create the field of data science for social impact. We started on this journey um, very early on in the center's inception. The idea that there are now data haves and data have-nots among social sector organizations, among sectors, I think is an idea that I want to plant here. Hopefully we can talk about it uh, in more detail another time. But I do think uh, you know, data inequality is almost as important, if not more important than income inequality, because if you lose the capability to analyze data and understand data, um, you may lose a generation of, uh, of understanding. And so we're spending a lot of time uh, at the Center for Inclusive Growth, really thinking about uh, data for social impact and what we need to do to invest and intervene in that space. Say more, um, what, what can one do in that arena? So we have, um, you know, like I said, very early in the conversation, one of the big assets of you know, MasterCard and many companies, frankly, is data and data analytics. And we came out early on with a framework around how we think about data as uh, an asset. And that framework, we call them the data responsibility principles, um, basically says that 
you know, you should own your data, you should control your data, and you should benefit from your data. And that's the way we're building our products and services at MasterCard. What we've done sort of at the center side is to, um, you know, we created an organization in partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation called data.org. And the idea there is to build out the social sector capacity, uh, uh, the data capacity of social sector organizations um, to realize the power of their own data. So we are creating use cases out of data.org to really build a model so that social sector organizations like the Financial Health Network, like any other organization can sort of come to a place and say, hey, we need to get our data maturity assessment done. What do we need to build out our data capacity? At the same time, we're also investing in talent because there is such a pipeline of data scientists that are so, it's so competitive and we need to have more and more. But what they're not necessarily receiving is the training around data science for social impact. And so we're doing a lot of investment um, with uh, universities to make sure that they're getting that training. And it, for example, we just announced last week a partnership with Howard University, which is building out there. They've created a new data science center at Howard. And um, what we're doing is partnering with them to ensure that we invest in, uh, you know, looking at bias in, in AI so that, uh, you know, what we see around African-Americans being excluded from financial services or biased against, you know, the financial uh -huh. services biasing against minorities um, is something that we look at. But I think that's been an area that, uh, you know, again, I hope to see more, you know, philanthropies get involved with um, more companies start to realize that they have an obligation to think about their data in a different way, that people start to, you know, we see it all the time. People have to understand that, you know, they they have to own and think about and be responsible also for the data that they're producing. Right. Well, given that MasterCard is both a technology company and a data company in many ways, yes. it's really remarkable to see the stance that you've taken uh, in this work, uh, because it's one thing for a data company to think about how it should treat the data it has, but it's another to really be uh, funding and supporting the development of a broader sector to encourage the appropriate use of data and to really take a customer-centric approach uh, and state so unequivocally uh, that you know people need to own and control their own data. That that is not a universally held perspective, uh, and so I give Mastercard um, and you a lot of credit for that. Thank you. No, I I hope that you know this is part of the the advice I had um, you know from our CEO at the time, Ajay Banga, who has now gone on to do um, other things. But when he was there, he said, you know when you create the Center for Inclusive Growth, try to move as fast as you can so that as you create a framework for others to plug into, you're creating the right incentives. He said, because one, you could create a center that kind of does things the way it's always been done. And, and that would be kind of interesting. But if you create a policy or an incentive or, or, a, or a program that creates competition for the right things, boy, wouldn't that be a really cool thing to figure out? And the pleasure that I've had working with Michael Meebach, who is the, the relatively new CEO, but he's been at MasterCard for a very long time, is that he thinks in a way that says, there's technology is neutral. 
And if we can create incentives around technology, and in this case, data, that incentivizes a race to the top instead of a race to the bottom, then why wouldn't we do that? And I think that's the freedom and the flexibility that if you get into a place, you know, a creative space, an innovative space that sort of relies on inclusive innovation with the, you know, with a CEO like Michael, you can sort of have, have this kind of runway to, to think in this way. And I, I do think that that's, um, I hopefully it's, it's a novel way, but I hopefully it won't be the only way. And I hope that a lot more companies start to think this way. Yeah. Shamina Singh, thank you for joining me on Emerge Everywhere. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. If you like the show, please help spread the financial health message by leaving a review. And if you have ideas for future guests or thoughts on the show, please click on the link in the show notes to connect with us. See you next time.